Religious liberty is about the freedom to uh, lead your entire life in conformity with what you come to believe to be the truth about the nature of the universe, the nature of God, and the nature of the obligations uh, that God places on your life. And that's not just for Sunday morning or for Friday afternoon. It's um, for all seven days of the week. That is Ryan T. Anderson. He is the William E. Simon Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, spends a lot of time writing about marriage and religious liberty. He's also editor of The Public Discourse, the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute, which is a fantastic resource. Uh, I'd encourage you to look that up right away. And he uh, is talking about uh, religious liberty quite a lot these days. And uh, everybody is, frankly. And we're going to do that right here, too, on Radio Free Acton. Hi again, everybody. Mark Vandermoss with you. Glad to be your host here on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. And as an institution, uh, we uh, are concerned deeply with the idea, the uh, the belief in religious liberty, and and we we uh, we in fact have it kind of baked into our mission statement. Of course, Acton's mission is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principle. We see that. Religion is an important part of a, of a healthy, functioning society, and that people should uh, be able to exercise their religious beliefs uh, as freely as possible, consistent with an orderly society. And so, uh, obviously, when religious liberty is uh, called into question or under assault, it's something that concerns us greatly here. And what I want to do today on Radio Free Acton is to take a step back from the media firestorm that has erupted of late. Obviously, uh, the issue of um, gay marriage is is right at the forefront of public discussion right now, and there are questions surrounding religious freedom restoration acts, uh, both at the federal level and uh, various state statutes that were enacted either before or concurrent with the federal statute back in the 90s or more recently, uh, as in Indiana. Uh, just in the past couple of weeks. Uh, and I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and misinformation that goes around about what exactly uh, a Religious Freedom Restoration Act is, what it's intended to do. But even more important, there's a lot of misunderstanding, uh, I think, here in America of what religious freedom itself is. What does it represent? Is it something that's just a simple right to go to church on Sunday and worship as your conscience dictates? Uh, is religious freedom something that you then put in a box on Monday and uh, store away so that you don't, uh, so that it doesn't come into conflict with anyone else? Or is relig religious freedom something more than that? Uh, something that's 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 more um, that's more fully orbed that gives you more uh, of an ability to live your life in accord with your conscience. Uh, these are questions that we need to know the answers to. And for people who love liberty and for people who care about religious faith uh, and who are citizens of the United States, especially at a time like this, we need to understand exactly what we're talking about when we talk about religious liberty. So let's do that. A little bit uh, earlier, I had an opportunity to sit down on the phone with Ryan Anderson of the Heritage Foundation. And without further ado, here's my chat with him. 
I am joined on the phone today by Ryan T. Anderson. Ryan Anderson researches and writes about marriage and religious liberty as the William E. Simon Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, fantastic organization. He's also the editor, and I did not know this until just today when I read his bio. He's the editor of Public Discourse, which is the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute, which is a fantastic resource. I go there regularly. They have just fantastic articles all the time. Uh, So, Ryan, good work there. And, uh, hey, welcome to Radio Free Acton. Happy to be with you. Uh, thanks for having me on today. No problem. We're glad to have you here. And it's uh, it, some important issues that we have to talk about today. One important issue, really, at the core of all of this. Uh, the, there's a, a, a huge storm right now in the country of controversy over questions of religious liberty. And uh, so often when issues like this come up, the, the question of religious liberty, the actual question of religious liberty, can so often get obscured in the firestorm and so, Ryan, what I'm hoping you can do is help us to, to sort of drill down to the fundamental issue that is in play here, and that is the question of what is religious liberty? I think a lot of people don't really think about that. Um, they don't think too deeply about it anyways. And so the question that I have for you is, is what is religious liberty? Is it something that's simply uh, a freedom that's granted to people to allow them to worship as they see fit, or is it more a, a more fully orbed idea that allows people to live their lives in line with their conscience? It seems that a lot of people think that it has little more to do with with life than than to allow people to worship as they see fit. What what can you uh, can you illuminate that for us a little bit? Sure, you know, religious liberty is about the freedom to uh, lead your entire life in conformity with what you come to believe to be the truth about the nature of the universe, the nature of God, and the nature of the obligations uh, that God places on your life. Um, It's not based on skepticism, you know, that there is no religious truth. It's not based on indifferentism. Religion doesn't matter, therefore we can leave it free. It's based on truth. Um, It's based on the importance of human beings being free to seek the truth, the truth about the biggest questions in life, the nature of the universe, the nature of the creator of the universe, the nature of the creator's commandments, the nature of the obligations that I, as a, uh, a human being, have vis-a-vis the creator and vis-a-vis his laws and vis-a-vis my life. Um, and that's not just for Sunday morning or for Friday afternoon. It's um, for all seven days of the week. Um, and this is what the founders of our nation uh, sought to enshrine. Uh, we see this best in George Washington. Uh, George Washington, he, uh, author of a famous letter to the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island. And what he says in that letter is he says, you know, the citizens of the United States have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of imitation. And he says that all citizens alike uh, possess immunities of conscience and of citizenship. And what's he getting at there is in the next paragraph he says, it's no more that we speak of toleration as if it's the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoy their inherent natural rights. He says, no, we're talking about liberty and a natural right to religious liberty. Um, And he's speaking to the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island. Historically, Jews had been tolerated, and you spoke of religious toleration. Think about John Locke's letter concerning toleration, as if... um, certain religious minorities, or if you're Catholics, you tolerate Protestants, or if you're Protestants, you tolerate Catholics. Catholics and Protestants alike tolerate Jews. He was saying, no, 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 no. In the United States, we recognize that you have a right. You have a natural right to religious liberty, to protections of conscience, immunities of citizenship, not just to worship how you want to worship, but to lead your lives in conformity with your beliefs about 
the truth of religion, provided it's compatible with justice and the common good. And so the important thing to highlight here is that religious liberty isn't an absolute right. If your religion tells you that you're supposed to um, commit human sacrifice or you're supposed to kill the innocent, something like that, uh, there are going to be limits. And the limits on religious liberty uh, are the demands of justice and the common good. The way that this got um, put into law in the United States context was the jurisprudence that developed around the First Amendment. And after a Supreme Court ruling that changed that jurisprudence, it got enacted in a statute known as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does, it says that government can only place a substantial burden on the free exercise of religion when it's doing so for a compelling government interest in the least restrictive way possible. And that test there, that balancing test between substantial burden on the free exercise of religion and compelling government interest least restrictive way possible, is how the natural right to religious liberty that's compatible with justice and the common good gets operationalized. It's how it gets worked out judicially. Um, compelling state interest, least restrictive way possible, that's looking at justice and the common good, substantial burden on the free exercise of religion. That's saying we need to protect the natural right to religious liberty. Ryan, as I as I look back and think back over the last couple of years, I, I don't know if it's particularly uh, in the Obama administration or if this had been increasing sort of unnoticed before uh, President Obama took office, but there have been, it seems to me, increasing conflicts and even increasingly sharp conflicts over issues of religious liberty. I go back a couple of years and I can recall uh, discussions about Healthcare worker exemptions in uh, in Obamacare and various other federal laws uh, that uh, exemptions that would allow healthcare workers to not participate in things like abortion procedures and the like that was controversial uh, for a time and then uh, last year of course there was a huge controversy over the Hobby Lobby uh, versus Sebelius case where the Supreme Court ruled that corporations do have some uh, religious freedom rights and then of course this year now we we have the with with the advance of uh, of gay marriage in America there are more and more uh, instances where individual uh, business owners or uh, businesses in general are are being um, well put under a microscope at the very least, and in some cases facing uh, lawsuits and even in possible financial ruin over uh, not w- wanting to participate in uh, gay marriage ceremonies. I think of Baronel Stultzman in Washington, the florist, who is currently being pursued by the attorney general of that state. Uh, because she referred a client to another florist rather than serve him herself for his wedding ceremony, um, are these conflicts? Are these conflicts being? Are, are they actually more frequent now? Are we seeing a change in our culture that's causing these things to come up more often? Uh, we we are. What we're seeing is it's it's the growth of uh, big government with liberal sexual values. And if you look at you know all of the um, kind of case studies you just mentioned are the confluence of big government and liberal values on human sexuality. Uh, so to take the example of the HHS mandate, so think about it, 42 years ago in Roe v. Wade, the court creates a constitutional right to abortion out of thin air. There's nothing in the U.S. Constitution um, that says that a right to privacy entails a right to kill an unborn child. But the consensus that we had for the past 40 years was that pro-life citizens should neither be coerced into paying for abortion or coerced into performing abortion. And the religious liberty concern here was that even if the court had said that you have a right to have an abortion, that doesn't mean you have a right to have someone else pay for your abortion or have a right to have someone else perform 
your abortion. And what made the Obamacare HHS mandate so outrageous was that we are now going to force pro-life citizens to pay for abortion in their health care plans, to pay for contraceptives in their health care plans. Right now, the Little Sisters of the Poor, a group of Catholic nuns, are still in the federal court system suing the Obama administration simply to be left alone, right? So this is a confluence of big government. There's a government mandate on health care coupled with liberal sexual values, mandating liberal sexual values on an order of Roman Catholic nuns. Um, last year at the Supreme Court, we saw the argument that religious liberty was solely a right to worship and that the Green family, uh, the evangelicals who own and operate Hobby Lobby, explicitly in accordance with their evangelical Christian beliefs. I mean, this is in the bylaws of the corporation, that it's explicitly a business that tries to bring glory to God and expects all of the members of the board to be professing Christians and to conduct their business life in accordance with their religious beliefs. Um, But no, no, they didn't have religious liberty protections to run that business because religious liberty was only about the freedom to worship. The same thing was said about the Han family. Uh, These are Mennonite Christians uh, who own and operate Conestoga Wood company. It's a woodworking company. Both of those groups, both of those families had to sue the Obama administration, um, not because of contraception. Evangelicals and Mennonites, they weren't opposed to contraception. They were opposed to the four FDA-mandated, or HHS-mandated, FDA-approved contraceptive devices that also caused abortion. They said, we're pro-lifers, and we don't want to be coerced into paying for drugs and devices that could kill an unborn child. And thankfully, they won at the Supreme Court, uh, but they won in a five-to-four decision. I think about how startling that is, um, that they only got the slimmest majority possible to protect their religious liberty rights to not be coerced into paying for drugs and devices that could cause an abortion. It is kind of and amazing how, how, our, how, our, how that liberty, that fundamental liberty that President Clinton, when he passed, when he signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, President Clinton, Democrat president, uh, called religious liberty the first freedom. And because it is. It's the very first uh, right that's protected in the very first amendment to our Constitution. You think about it, our Bill of Rights, the very first right that's mentioned in the Bill of Rights is religious liberty. The free exercise of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the free exercise of religion is the very first one that's protected there. And this used to be something that had bipartisan support. Um, this, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed unanimously in the House and then Representative Chuck Schumer was its sponsor. It passed with 97 votes in the Senate, and Senator Ted Kennedy was the sponsor, and President Bill Clinton signed it to the law. What has changed in the past 20 years? We've seen a growth in big government, and we've seen a rise in uh, liberal sexual values. And nowhere does this come to a head more clearly than in the marriage debate. And that's why what we saw uh, in the Indiana situation was a concern that perhaps a small photography shop or a bakery or a florist might choose to decline to help cater and celebrate a same-sex wedding. I don't know of any religion that teaches um, you can't serve dinner to someone because they're gay. And so if you're running a pizza shop, you're going to be kicking people out because they're gay. And that's not what the pizza owners said. Uh, In the case of that interview, the pizza owners were asked, would you cater the same-sex wedding? And that's where they said we would probably decline. The question for me, in in a free society, uh, and especially on this uh, podcast, which is talking to people who are concerned about the economy, why would we want to say that only if you share the government's 
moral views can you run a business? Don't we want citizens to be running their businesses in accordance with their moral and religious beliefs? Why would we think that religious liberty is just about worship, not about action? Don't we want our businesses to be conscientious businesses? Don't we want these professionals to be free to run their businesses in accordance with their beliefs? And the only concern here is about the same-sex wedding ceremony. It's not about whether or not we're going to have businesses kicking gays and lesbians out. No one would support that, and no religion teaches that. And I think you 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 could point out that no, there is no evidence, and I'm sure you can you can uh, comment more fully on this. That there is no evidence that these laws, which have been in effect for many years now, decades in some circumstances, have ever been used to try to justify that sort of behavior. Uh, as far as we know, there's not a single example that someone could point to of a, a religious freedom restoration act at the federal level or at the state level uh, successfully being used to deny services uh, to gays or lesbians. There's also, as far as I know, no religion that teaches um, that you're supposed to deny services to gays and lesbians. The only religious liberty concern anywhere in this general ballpark are with weddings, marriages. Um, you know, the photographer was happy to do uh, portrait pictures. The objection was to the same-sex wedding photography. The baker was happy to do a happy birthday cake. The, object- the objection was to a same-sex wedding cake. Um, the florist was happy to do get well soon flowers. The objection was to the floral bouquets for a same-sex wedding. And in a free society, I just don't know why we would want the government coercing these people. Um, the, the, the height of hypocrisy in this debate last week was a bunch of big business CEOs saying we're going to boycott the state of Indiana over this law. They wanted to be free to run their businesses in accordance with their values. So they were boycotting a state that was trying to protect the freedom of its citizens to run their businesses in accordance with their values. I mean, just think about that. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, was saying, Indiana is now so inhospitable, we're going to boycott it because it's incompatible with the values of Apple. Mm -hmm. Isn't that exactly the freedom that Indiana was trying to protect for business owners to run their businesses in accordance with their values? It's even more hypocritical in the case of Apple because Apple has revoked from its app store, the Manhattan Declaration app. The yes. Manhattan Declaration is an app of Christian witness. It was written by Robbie George, Chuck Colson, and Timothy George on life, marriage, and religious liberty, coming at those three issues from a Christian perspective. And the app store said, this, this is unacceptable. It's hate speech because you're witnessing to the truth that marriage is the union of a man and a woman. That's incompatible with our beliefs that Apple. We're not allowing you to be in our app store. Now, no one said there should be a law forcing Apple to host the Manhattan Declaration app. No one said there should be a law that says the Manhattan Declaration gets to be in the App Store. And yet, Apple CEO Tim Cook is saying that there should be a law that says the Christian baker, the evangelical photographer, the Catholic florist should be forced to help celebrate the same-sex wedding. In, in in light of that, and I I know we've got to we've got to wrap this up pretty quick here. I want I want to just point out a couple of things that dis, that unsettled me that that disturbed me over the weekend as I was reading about this issue, and that is there seems to be um, I don't know if it's so much a change in the way that the left in general approaches issues of religious liberty. It it might not be so much a change as it is just a bit more honesty in their approach to the to religious liberty. And I, I can talk about uh, a couple of different points on this. The Washington Post had an editorial on March 26th 
where they said in their editorial, for instance, and this is this is objecting to a bill in Georgia, for instance, a bill the Georgia Senate approved this month bars the state government from infringing on an individual's religious beliefs unless the state can demonstrate a compelling interest in doing so, which uh, presumably, if you extend that out, you would you would understand the Washington Post editorial board to be saying that the state, a state, does not need a compelling interest to infringe an individual's religious belief. Uh, the New York Times, in an editorial, said the freedom to exercise one's religion is not under assault in Indiana or anywhere else in the country. Religious people, including Christians who continue to make up the majority of Americans, can worship however they wish and say whatever they like, which uh, implicitly hems in religious freedom to freedom of worship and freedom in your private uh, conscience to say whatever you would like. There, there's not, they, they, of course, would not allow you to uh, exercise your beliefs in a concrete way in your uh, commercial transactions. But the most disturbing thing I saw uh, was a column by Frank Bruni, who's a columnist for The Times. And uh, he has a column just this past week titled Bigotry, the Bible, and the Lessons of Indiana. And in this column he it's it appears to me goes full totalitarian he says uh, referencing a couple of people here creech and mitchell gold and mitchell gold figures into this comment mitchell gold a prominent furniture maker and gay philanthropist founded an, ad, an advocacy group faith in america which aims to mitigate the damage done to lgbt people by what it calls quote religion-based bigotry and here's the here's the kicker sentence gold he's referring to mitchell gold there told me that church leaders must be made, quote, to take homosexuality off the sin list. And Bruni goes on to endorse that sentiment. He says his commandment is worthy and warranted. Um, so we've got the the editorial boards of the two major newspapers, uh, probably the two biggest newspapers in America, at least on the East Coast, uh, endorsing the idea that religious liberty is not a full-bodied uh, 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 liberty, but it's rather a circumscribed uh, individual uh, private liberty. And we have a columnist for the largest t- paper in the nation essentially saying, yeah, Christians should be coerced. It would be a worthy thing for presumably, I, I would assume he's referring to the government, to coerce Christians to drop this longstanding teaching of the church. I mean, is is the left... Uh, it seems that, that the mask is slipping. Do you think that that's a, a real concern there? Oh, yes. I, mean, I think what we're seeing here is that the left is just being more honest and more direct about the um, confluence of their big government and their uh, liberal sexual values. Um, so if you think about you know, this in, in the context of the Acton Institute, um, part of the problem here is religious liberty violations, but part of the problem here is also economic liberty violations. If the founders were to come back today and they were to look at the HHS mandate, before they even said that violates religious liberty, they would say, what authorized the federal government in the first place to create Obamacare? And then what authorized the Department of Health and Human Services to issue a mandate saying that every business in America has to cover these 20 contraceptives and abortion-causing drugs? So before we even get to the fact that this mandate violates religious liberty, they would say it violates economic liberty. What empowers the government to be doing this in the first place? Um, the second thing to mention is that, I mean, just look at how clear it is in the New York Times op-ed columnist that you mentioned. The goal here is to eradicate a religious belief that that columnist disagrees with. Mm-hmm. And he's going to use the force of government to do so. And he makes a parallel to the interracial marriage um, uh, 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 situation. And what he fails to recognize is that from the very beginning 
of the Hebrew Bible, the very beginning of the book of Genesis, through the very end of the Christian Bible, you know, all the way through the end of the book of Revelation, the Bible is full of spousal imagery of male and female, of husband and wife. It's how God talks about his relationship with Israel, how God talks about his relationship between Christ and his church. All throughout the Bible, you see male-female spousal language. You never see anything about race in the Bible. And the idea that the government is going to be able to eradicate um, the religious belief that marriage is the union of a man and a woman, it's bad enough that it's trying to uh, eradicate the philosophical truth. I mean, I think marriage simply as a matter of natural law, simply as a matter of right reason, is the union of a man and a woman. And it looks like the government, particularly through the court system, is trying to undo that. But that it would go a step further and try to revise the Bible should be outrageous to any American. It's a direct assault on our first freedom, on what this nation was founded to protect. Ryan, I'm curious as we wrap this up, are there any concrete steps that an average person, uh, that, that you would recommend an average person could take to combat this, uh, either in the political system or just in society in general? Sure. Um, several things. First, to not be intimidated, to not be silenced. The primary mechanism that the left is using right now is to uh, intimidate um, Americans into silence if they believe the truth about marriage, if they believe the truth about religious liberty. They will call you a bigot. They will call you a racist. They will boycott your pizza establishment. They're trying to make it very costly for Americans to bear witness to the truth, and we have to simply uh, reject that, to refuse to be intimidated. Uh, Second, we have to make sure that our law and our public policy um, protect our rights, don't violate our rights. And this uh, entails two things. One, we need good religious liberty protections. We need limited government protections. We need to make sure that the government is not allowed um, to do things that would violate the sincere religious beliefs of Americans, unless it's absolutely for a compelling state interest in the least restrictive way possible. So we need good religious liberty protections. But secondly, we need to uh, prevent bad laws from being passed. Um, And so here we have the situation of some people are trying to equate sexual orientation with race. And they're trying to say that the civil rights protections that we have for race, we need to have for sexual orientation. Um, And that's problematic for a host of reasons, not least that it's been those sexual orientation laws that have been used to shut down Christian adoption agencies. They've been used to harass the bakers, the florists, the photographers. Um, There is no reason to create special privileges in the law based upon sexual orientation. Ryan, I know you're a busy man. You've got to be on the move, but I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. It's a lot of good information in there, and and again, I agree fully. People need to be need to take hold of their rights and exercise them and know fully what they are. So thank you so much for sharing that information with us. And as this, uh, obviously, this is going to be an issue that is ongoing. Hopefully we'll be able to talk to you again. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Ryan. That's Ryan Anderson of the Heritage Foundation and also the editor of Public Discourse, uh, fine organization, the Heritage Foundation Public Discourse. I can't recommend it enough. Well, that's our podcast for today, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and I want to thank you for joining us today on Radio Free Acton. It's always a pleasure to be able to bring you the podcast of the Acton Institute, and I really hope that today's podcast uh, is helpful to you as a reference, uh, something that you can go back to and remind yourself occasionally Uh, especially for our listeners who are people of faith, who are Christians and people of other faiths. We we need to understand uh, exactly what we're talking about when we say that we have our rights, we have our religious liberty. What do we mean by that? 
Um, we, we need to understand that we're not talking about just freedom of worship. Freedom of worship is not full religious liberty. Religious liberty entails the ability to live your life in accord with the conscience that you gain from going to worship and hearing those sermons preached and being in the Word of God for Christians. You know, there is a, there's a very real part of the Christian life that, that is living out your faith in public, out in the public square, and Christians need to be able to fully uh, embrace that freedom that they that they have, uh, and and we need to be able to defend it. So, uh, to Ryan Anderson, I want to say thank you very much for for coming on the show again and for spending some time laying these things out for us uh, a little bit more clearly. And I want to thank you as well for listening today to Radio Free Act. And if you know of anybody else who would benefit from this uh, podcast, either this edition or previous editions, they can head over to. Acton.org, radio.acton.org is the location to go to for all of our podcast archives. And uh, check out the Acton Power blog as well, blog.acton.org. And once again, thank you for joining us. We hope to see you again on our future editions of Radio Free Acton. Have a great day, everybody.